we've been following on our Sunday mornings um, a new series in John's Gospel, and so we're going to continue that today. And our reading today is from John chapter 2, and reading from verse 12 to 25. John's Gospel, you know, is written obviously by John, uh, the beloved disciple, and he wrote it that those who read it would believe in Jesus. That's his aim. He's not embarrassed about that aim. You know, someone asked me, why do we do the men's breakfast on our table yesterday? And I was just, because we want you to know Jesus. That's why we do it. We want you to know Jesus. And that's John's aim. Because he knows that knowing Jesus makes that difference between life and death. Jesus clears the temple, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. From Psalms. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Should we just pray? Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is a word that is for us. A light to our feet. It is a sword that can pierce our very heart but we know that your word is for our good. And so we pray this morning that you would release your word in us for your glory, Lord. Amen. Following Jesus begins with the forgiveness of sins and the offering of true worship. 
We cannot come to Jesus without having our sins forgiven because to have a relationship with God means that we have that that which has blocked our relationship dealt with. And so we come to Jesus, and we come in different ways, and we come out of his love and his grace, or sometimes out of conviction, but we come and we accept that what Jesus did on the cross is for us. And what that does in our lives is it just provokes worship, because we know that God is with us, and he's for us, and he's done so much, something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And so we just pour out praise, and we will not stay silent. And as I thought about this passage for this week, um, this word came to me. Repentance will release the miraculous. That's the word that God's given me to share with you today. Repentance will release the miraculous. I don't know quite what that means. I'm hoping by the end of this message that I'll have discerned what God is trying to say in that. Repentance will release the miraculous. As John writes his gospel, he writes it so that you might believe. But John thinks you might not believe when he tells you that there are some people who refuse to look at Jesus. There are some people who refuse to listen to Jesus at all. There are some people who do not want to be saved by Jesus. Now you find that astounding, I'm sure. And John introduces us to some of them in this very passage. And what's more surprising to those who have read it right at the beginning is that he was talking about the deeply religious people. Those who were there saying that they had a knowledge of God, but they didn't want Jesus. They had almost put God in a box. Well, they had. They'd put him in a building. And thought that he was their God. They could control In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees controlled the synagogues. The Sadducees controlled the temple. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very different. The Sadducees were more the aristocracy. The Pharisees were the religious zealots. It's interesting that both groups came together to destroy Jesus. They differed on lots of things, their belief in the resurrection and other things, but they come together against Jesus. And in this passage, we see Jesus coming to the temple. Fifteen centuries or so earlier, God had brought the people of God, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness, promising them a new land. And he graciously presenced himself with them in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He wasn't constrained to those things, but he graciously presenced himself in those things so that people would know that God was with them. 
And they would not move unless the pillar of smoke moved or the pillar of fire moved. Then he graciously gave them a place to meet with God. A tent of meeting where Moses would go and meet with God face to face and receive from God the commandments. He promised his presence would dwell there. Again, not restricted to that place, but just out of his grace. The tabernacle, which was that sort of portable place that they could move around with them, but God presenced himself because he was with his people. The tabernacle in the desert was upgraded to a temple in Jerusalem. David had the vision that he wanted to build a house for God, a magnificent house for God, a place of worship, a place where people could meet with God, a place where the nations could come and meet with God. But he wasn't to build it. His son Solomon built the temple and it was majestic, it was magnificent, it was made of the best materials. It was to glorify God. 958 BC. And at its dedication, Solomon himself declared that no building could ever contain the glory of God. His presence could not be contained by the highest heavens, let alone this building made by the hands of men. But in his grace, God's glory filled the temple. And everyone was overwhelmed at its dedication. They couldn't stand in the presence of God. His glory was so powerful. The temple became the beating heart of Judaism. The center of worship, of music, even of politics. The national celebrations took place there. It was a focal point. It's where the sacrifices were made. And above all else, it was the place where God had promised to be there in the midst of them. Again, not contained. At times during the Passover, we're told that over two million people would be flocking to Jerusalem. Two million people. But in time, as you know, religion takes over. There were times when that temple was destroyed, as Jerusalem was fought over again and again. And a new building was erected. And that was destroyed. And then another one. And when we come to the days of Jesus, it was the one that Herod the Great had begun to build. 46 years and it still hadn't been finished at the time of Jesus. But you're never told in the scriptures that God's glory was there. In fact, Ezekiel, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, says that God has left the temple. He clearly saw that God was looking for a new temple where he would inhabit. 
there would be a new covenant. That's what Jeremiah would speak about in the hearts of men and women. And so the time when Jesus comes to the temple, it has become corrupt. God in a box. And we cannot begin to imagine how shocking, absolutely shocking, it would have been on the 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock News 24, what Jesus did in the temple. It would have been an outrage. Yes, Herod's temple was magnificent, but it was just a building. So what was wrong with the temple? What causes Jesus to act in the way that he did? Why did Jesus do what he did and what did it mean? These are the questions we're going to look at. But before that, there's another question that was kind of jumping out at me as I looked at this passage. Because all the other gospel writers record the cleansing of the temple right at the end of Jesus' ministry. When he comes to Jerusalem that final time and it's Palm Sunday and Hosannas and he cleanses the temple and then he gives his life and the resurrection. But John, John has it right at the beginning. What's going on there? Maybe you don't ask questions like that, but I do. This is Jesus' first recorded visit to Jerusalem as an adult. Luke records Jesus visiting as a child, 12 years old, young lad. And you remember the story that he's uh, forgotten about by Mary and Joseph. They think he's with somebody else in the party and they all head home and no, he's there in the temple. They have to go back and fetch him. They give him a right good telling off and he kind of puts them straight. And Luke probably sourced that from Mary. John doesn't mention that. But interestingly, when you read John's gospel, he mentions many visits to Jerusalem. Not just one visit. The other gospel writers, one visit to Jerusalem right at the end. John has many visits to Jerusalem. Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem many times. He goes for the feast. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles when he stands and says on the greatest day of the feast, come to me all who are thirsty. Because he's the fulfillment of all the feasts. The Gospels are complementary and not contradictory. The Gospel writers did not sit down together as a group of four of them and say, Oh, what are you putting in? What are you putting in? Oh, I haven't got that. Why are you putting it there? It wasn't like that. In our modern minds, people expect the Gospels to be right. They should, have, you know, they should have had it all together, sorted it out, because some things don't agree, and some things happen twice, and why didn't they get it? They didn't. That's not how it was. There were eyewitness accounts. They were writing it down. Different times they were writing. Different audiences they were aiming the Gospels at. Now, it's a possibility that Jesus actually went to the temple twice, cleared it out twice. You know what people are like. There's no reason to think that he didn't do that twice. 
It would explain why so many Jews from Jerusalem went up to Galilee to hear Jesus. What is this man doing? We don't know. It could be that John is more interested in theology than chronology. More interested in truth than in the order of events. We don't know. But what he does want you to know is Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is actually the fulfillment of the temple. He is the true temple. He is the Word made flesh. God himself in human flesh. He is the place where God has chosen to reveal his glory. He is the glory of God. John says we've seen his glory. We saw his glory on the cross. We saw his glory at the resurrection. We have seen his glory. We saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration when we couldn't believe what was happening. He was just blazing. Jesus comes to the temple and what does he see? Nothing. Dead. It's corrupt. God in a box. God's glory and grace packaged and sold. They had this magnificent building and they were using it to obscure God's majesty. And they had taken God's mandate for mission to be a light to the nations, calling the nations to worship at the temple as a lucrative business opportunity. The money changers. You read it in the message version. Eugene Peterson is great. He calls them the loan sharks. That's what they were. As the pilgrims came to the temple. And they arrived with all sorts of currencies. You could only buy the temple sacrifices with the proper money. You had to change your money. And when you changed your money, you didn't get a good deal. You were ripped off. And if you brought your own animals to sacrifice, which were cheaper outside of the temple, when you got in the temple, they would say, it's not good enough. You have to buy from us. And of course, it's much more expensive. You know the deal. You go to see a film at the cinema and you try smuggling in your popcorn and they say, no, you have to buy it here and it's 10 pounds for a teacup of popcorn. I've mentioned that before. It's one of my beefs about cinemas. (laughs) Wouldn't it be amazing if we just went in and cleared it all out? All the money changers and the popcorn sellers. Be outraged. Pick and mix. Anyway, don't. (laughs) I don't know. People think I'm really fat when I go to cinemas. I've got it all stuffed in. Just a tip. In 54 BC, when Crassus captured Jerusalem, he raided the temple treasury. 
54 BC, he took the equivalent of two and a half million pounds without even denting the treasury. That's the corruption Jesus meets. And Jesus comes to the temple and he drives them all out, all the sheep and the cattle. And he overturns the temple. There's money going everywhere. Doves flying everywhere. He's got a whip. Faced with a temple that presented the world with a scaled-down, money-grabbing, false vision of God. Sound familiar at all? Jesus worshipped his father by tearing it down. Shocking. But it had become an ugly idol. Rampant. Shameless injustice. It's what comes of religion. It's what religion ends up at. Jesus doesn't want us to become religious. He wants us to follow him, give our lives to him. What's the first commandment? To love the Lord your God. Not to be religious. And they ask him, because they're offended by him, what authority do you have to do this? They're asking God himself, what authority do you have to do this? What miraculous sign will you give us to prove your authority? I hear that many times. If God would just come down right now and perform some miraculous sign, I'll become a Christian. No, you won't. Because you'll explain it away. Jesus says, tear down this temple, I'll build it in three days. And they go, what about? 46 years and we haven't finished it yet. You're going to build it in three days? And they don't get it, do they? And we probably wouldn't have got it either, would we? We don't, what does he mean? And later, John explains, because he says later they would, he was talking about his body. He's the temple. Tear it down, it's going to come back in three days. It'll be built in three days. The resurrection. That is the proof. If you're going to be convinced by any miracle that God has ever done, he came back from the dead, walked out of his own grave, only one ever. That's why you're here this morning. You wouldn't be here if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. I don't know where you'd be, but you wouldn't be here. I don't want to think where I would be without Jesus. I was heading in a wrong direction. They didn't get it. They didn't get Jesus. But they didn't want to get Jesus. There are some people who just don't want to get Jesus. The resurrection is a sign for all mankind. In fact, Jesus, doesn't he, he prophesies that the temple, the physical building, will pass into oblivion. There will be no, no stone on left on another. No stone left on another. And it was true. The Romans, when they came in AD 70, they just wiped it all out. 
No stone left on another. The western wall that we go and visit, which is an amazing place to go and visit, the most holy place for Jews. It's not the wall of the temple. It's just one of the buttress walls, of the outer wall, of the outer courtyards. The temple was just destroyed. Because the true temple is here. Jesus. God had come in person. Not the cloud or the fire or even the tent or even the temple. You want a meeting place with God. It's Jesus. You want to meet with God, you meet him in Jesus. Come to me, says Jesus. Jesus wants to save everyone who is willing. Everyone who will acknowledge that they need saving. And they hated him for it. And they hated his message. And the Sadducees themselves would lead a call for Jesus' death. But others were told believed. But then John puts this interesting little bit in, in the description, doesn't he? He says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He would not entrust himself to them. It's as if John ends this passage with a personal challenge to those who are reading it. Because Jesus knows what's in each person's heart. He receives right through each one of us. And it says that he knew what was in man. He could tell the genuine from the fake. He could tell the cover-up from the ones that were really wanting to follow him. And he, as you read through the Gospels, he does entrust himself to those who really want to follow him. And Jesus comes full of grace and truth, never compromised. I find that amazing about Jesus, that he never compromised. Never compromised on sin, but never compromised on truth. But he was so full of grace. And the church down through the centuries have found it so hard to do that. We're either so full of truth, there is no grace. Or we're so full of grace that there's no truth. And we have to have both together. So Jesus comes again and again throughout church history and cleanses the church, doesn't he? Following Jesus begins with the issue of forgiveness, repentance of sins, and the offering of true worship. I don't know why God said this word, repentance will release the miraculous. Only that I know that that's what he does. When I first heard the story of the Inuit people in Pointsbridge, when I heard the tape, someone played me an audio tape of the service. They were worshipping. And suddenly there's a wind that you hear audibly on the tape that whistles through the church. 
The drummer can't keep drumming. He falls off his drum kit. And then suddenly there's cries from within the church. Fire. Fire. And there's deep repentance among the Christians. Because suddenly they were faced with a holy God. And his presence filled the place where they were meeting. And they could not do anything but just get right with him. And the men of the church, many of whom were alcoholics, many of whom were addicted to pornography, went home, got all the stuff, and burnt it publicly in the square of the town. And smashed all the alcohol bottles that they had stashed away in the secret places. And revival broke out. And I've been so challenged to my core about the sin in my life. And the times I come back to God and just say sorry for the same thing. Again and again. And I believe that God is calling us to repent. Of the secret sins in our lives. The things that we've hidden away. We've pushed down. We're respectable. Nobody would ever know. But God sees. And he's calling us to get right with him. And I am just an ordinary bloke who would say, well, I'm already right with him. I am. But he wants to do a deeper work in me. He wants to do a deeper work in us. And so he calls. And I believe this is true, that repentance will release the miraculous amongst us. But we can't make it up. You can't make it up, can you? You can't make genuine repentance of, yeah, right, I'm going to be really genuine about saying sorry this time. So we're just going to pray. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill this room. And if you want to come and publicly just, just say to God, I want to be right with you, then come to the front. That's fine. I don't want you to be embarrassed because there'll be loads of us up here, starting with me. If you want to just deal with God in your place where you are, just do that. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. I don't know what's going to happen, but should we stand and pray? Stand and pray. Holy Spirit, you are holy. You are the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. You are holy. You are God, and you are holy, and we are sorry for our sins. We are sorry that we come again and again over the same things, and we want to be different. We want to be changed. 
We want to see the miraculous. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Fill this place right now. Encounter us right now. And where we need to respond, just put your finger on those things that we might turn. It's not a condemning thing. This is not a condemning. Jesus doesn't condemn us, but he puts his finger on us and he says, come, I want to change you. I want to change you. Holy Spirit, will you come and move amongst us? Right now. Fill this place. Fill this place. Holy fire of God. I'm sorry for my sins. I am so sorry that I have hurt you. I've hurt others. I want to be right with you. If God's speaking to you, I encourage you just to come down to the front, maybe kneel, maybe stand, just as a response. Just come. Musicians are going to play. We're just going to spend a few moments in God's presence. Just come. We stand before God. We stand together. vision from God and uh, in the vision she just saw a tap being turned but it's being turned the wrong way and the Lord just wants to, to turn it back the other way to release the flow of his Holy Spirit to release the outpouring of his Holy Spirit as we come and as we just stand before God repent of our sins pray Holy Spirit that you would release the miraculous amongst us release the miraculous here Lord come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit